0: Our scripture reading today is from Genesis 49, uh, 28 through 50:14. All these are the, tri- the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. 40 days were required for it for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh saying, if now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh saying, my father made me swear saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan there shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph his brother's and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. Uh, It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor at Etad, they said, there is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim, it is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittites to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Things don't always work out as we plan or desire. That's part of life in this world. Uh, and sometimes things go better than we planned or expected. If, if there's a surprise that is in line with what we desire, that's good. Life is filled with those good moments that uh, we find ourselves asking, what did I do to deserve this? Um, uh, why did this happen? But usually when things go better than we expected, we don't spend too much time on those questions we accept it we enjoy it we move on it's when things don't go as we plan or desire that we get stuck on those questions did i do something to deserve this why did this happen and when it's something we don't desire or something we fear it particularly stings when we don't expect it when we don't see it coming Uh, today we're as we're nearing the end of the sermon series on joseph and the end of genesis which we'll finish next week we read about uh, Jacob's last breaths and his burial, the death of Jacob. Jacob's life did not go as he planned or expected. If you remember back when he meets Pharaoh, and Pharaoh introduces himself and Jacob says, my days have been few and evil. He's had a hard life, much of it his own fault because of choices he's made, some dishonorable things he did. Um, but one of the reasons we're looking at not just Jacob, but Joseph and and the story of this family, besides their importance in the whole Bible story, the Christian story, it's a long story with a lot of details that shows us that people do terrible things that have terrible consequences and uh, families are are, um, challenged by it, Uh, individuals, there's injustice, all of the things we see in life, uh, not all of them, but so many of them are in this story. And it's not a simplistic story, it's not an easy story, And yet behind the scenes God is working so that there's a surprising sense in which many things you wouldn't expect to resolve do in good ways. And many of the things that don't still are carried throughout the Bible until we see God's purpose in it. And we're in a season right now where many things are not going as we, uh, we can't plan. <laughs> Um, because things keep changing and it's discouraging and there's been so much difficulty in the period that we're in and it seems that will continue, that it's been helpful for us to remember that those who, who believe the gospel and those who look to the Bible don't have answers for every immediate question, but have a foundation that says if you keep going, you'll see both the wisdom and the goodness of God. And those two things are easy to lose sight of. But they create a foundation that if we, if we don't trust ourselves or the people around us or our world, that creates a foundation that helps us keep going in the testimony of people who have trusted him consistently as they look back from some vantage point and say, the Lord is good, the Lord is wise. I did not expect this, I did not want this, I would not have chosen this. And yet somehow, in many ways, I see the wisdom of the Lord. That doesn't resolve everything, answer everything but it helps us at a time right now that we can't resolve and answer everything. So what I wanna do in looking at the passage today, the end of chapter 49 and the beginning of chapter 15, is to consider three details of this story that help us see the wisdom and goodness of God. Uh, that's something that's really important to, to be clear on, to, to take hold of because it sustains us. So I wanna begin with God doing something different There's what we want to happen, and sometimes something different happens. That was certainly the case for Jacob's life. Now, it was true in Jacob's life in various ways, but one thread of the Jacob story, if you go back and you read the the last section of uh, the last, just more than the last half of Genesis, is there's a romance story. There's a love at first sight story. Jacob sees a woman named Rachel, and he falls in love. And the story is such that her father agrees that uh, Jacob can marry her, but there's this idea of him having to work seven years, and the story is told as though it's nothing. <laughs> um, it, you know, it, it, uh, We have to be careful of not reading ancient books like we would read modern books, but it has these elements of this modern love story of somebody who's so enamored um, that just the time passes quickly. He's willing to do anything. It's that kind of uh, deep romantic love. I'm not sure exactly how this was pulled off, but, but Laban, the father of, of Rachel, uh, on the wedding night switches for his older sister because that would be the custom that you marry the older daughter first. So Jacob inadvertently marries Leah. So now this simple storyline. I see this woman that I love. I wanna have a family with her. It could happen. He's working for it. Something comes in that then makes everything complex. And we've read about some of the complexity in terms of now there are children with various women, they resent each other, there's favoritism. Um, Everything gets complicated in a way that's terrible. And yet along the way, it seems that Jacob's heart to a certain degree is still in Rachel. So so he marries Leah and he says, I will work another seven years, and he gets what he wants. Uh, But there's Leah who is having children and Rachel who is unable. And so that's another complexity that the story just gets harder and harder to follow towards a good end. Um, But, you know, eventually Rachel does have a child named Joseph, and he's the one we've been following. But it's clear that after so many years of waiting and wanting, um, I don't know exactly why, but that's no doubt part of why Joseph is the clear favorite for Jacob. It's the firstborn that he wanted. It's not his firstborn, but it's in his plan his firstborn. He wanted to marry Rachel and have children with her. And it's that problem that we've been seeing how it unfolds, that the other brothers resent Joseph and they sell him off into slavery. And the this, this story, Joseph's life does not go as he wants. And yet, and yet God is at work through Joseph for the sake of the very people who rejected him. And here we see that somehow God is at work. Because you read this story and maybe you read it and you think, oh, poor Jacob, could you imagine what he went through? But you look at what he did to his father and to his brother, and you're more likely to say, yeah, he kind of had it coming to him. But there's not enough details about Leah and Rachel to think that that's justified. It's hard not to read it and think, what about these poor women? And what is it that they're experiencing? And as we, as we look at, at just this moment of Jacob's death, there's a hint that if Leah wrestled with being the, the less loved wife, that God, who is going to do something big, um, has not forgotten her. He has not overlooked her. He doesn't look like at her like Jacob does. And so in verses 29 to 32 of chapter 49, Jacob is in Egypt and now he wants to be buried at the cave that Abraham bought for Sarah when Sarah died. That's the only land that they sort of have official right to. And, uh, and here's what it says. Jacob commanded them to say, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephraim the Hittite in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. Now, why does he want to be there? Well, this is the, the place of promise. It's a bit of one of the tensions in the story. Does he go to Egypt? And will he ever go back? Will he break the promise? And here it is, his dying breath, I want to be with the fathers. (laughs) um, But the mothers are remembered importantly and you would expect if Jacob was in charge of the plan, he would say with Abraham and Sarah and with Isaac and Rebecca and with Rachel, the wife whom I buried with them. But things don't turn out neatly. Rachel dies near Bethlehem in a place called Ramah giving birth to Benjamin. Now, why did they not carry her there and bury her in the the cave? I'm sure there's a number of explanations for it. What I'm trying to highlight today is Jacob did not plan on marrying Leah. Leah, who all these years suffered um, being the second wife. But in God's redemptive story, Leah is the mother of the priests and the kings. The important functions in Israel, it's, it's Levi, who's the mother of Moses and Aaron and the and the perpetual priesthood who's born to Leah. It's David and Josiah and Hezekiah and Jesus who comes from the line of Judah who's born of Leah. And here's this thing that Jacob may have spent all these years dealing with this complexity and confusion and feeling swindled and all of these things, but, but through this suffering and the confusion, God is at work doing something, and it's not that at the end, Jacob would say it was all worth it. We don't know what Jacob was thinking, but we see that whatever he was thinking, God was looking at Leah differently. And Leah now has a legacy Uh, with Sarah and with Rebecca. She's there with Abraham and with Isaac. She's there now, remembered as the one whom God would work through, not through the one Jacob looked at and with his eyes loved, but with the one God purposed to bring the plan of salvation for through. And so, you know, we think of our own lives and and, and our lives are filled with things that don't work out as we plan or desire or work for. And we have to grapple with acceptance. Now, the Bible is not teaching an instant acceptance, meaning you have career aspirations and you apply to some professional school and you work hard and you take your tests and you get your references and you send in your materials and you don't get in. The Christian response is not to instantly say it wasn't the Lord's will and move on to something else but it creates a bit of a crisis. <laughs> or is this not your will? Is the door closed? Do I need to go back this year and study again and take this LSAT? Do I need to take another class and get a better reference? Um, so it's not obvious just because you didn't get in that the door is closed and that's the problem is we have to work through these disappointments. What does this mean? But there are some times that we have to accept it looks like this thing that I want is, is not attainable. And so what does that mean? And it's never easy to go through. And Christianity does not offer a quick magical, well, just pray and it'll be fine, or things will work out in some easy way. We're told that we'll go through periods where we need to figure it out, we need to live by faith, we need to pray and seek God's guidance and make choices. What we're told that's very valuable is God is wise, and he watches over his people, and sometimes he has purposes for our lives that are different from what we know because God's plans are greater (laughs) in every way than what we could even imagine. And so that doesn't make disappointment easy, but it means that sometimes as we grapple with disappointment, we have to say, this is another time that the standard for Christianity is you have to live by faith. You have to trust God. Now I can't trust myself. I don't know what else I could do. I can't trust The institutions around me because they're not giving me access. However we're thinking about it, we could say, but if I trust God, uh, I could trust that one day I will look back and I will see the wisdom of how he's governed my life. And this is now different, and so we need to be open to that difference. God sometimes does different things. That doesn't mean everything is good. That doesn't mean everything is obvious. That doesn't mean things are quick or magical. Sometimes they are. God is kind. Sometimes you ask for something, he gives it to you. Sometimes God surprises you in ways that cause you to marvel. It's, it's when we get stuck in these questions that we can't answer, that we have to remember that God loved Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. He was faithful to everything he promised them, but there were consequences for their bad decisions. But there were also things that we can't explain and can't understand, but God used them in ways that years later showed God was wise and good and kind. So sometimes God does something different. The second thing I want to highlight from the passage is that sometimes God does something for others, meaning the difficulties his own faithful servants face are sometimes for their own growth, their own humility, their own sanctification, to prepare something greater that they didn't know about. But sometimes God is going to do something in our lives for the sake of others. And sometimes it's something hard in our lives. We suffer because God has left his people on earth in order to continue to, to bring blessing, and sometimes there's a costliness to it that comes to his own people. You know, what's interesting about um, this passage is Joseph has suffered greatly, and what's clear from the story as a whole, his being betrayed by his brothers, he's being sold into slavery, he's being falsely accused, he's going to, imprison- to prison, he's being forgotten, all of these details The story never says, see, it was all fine. It was no big deal. What are you complaining about? Instead, it says, but through it all, Joseph sees that he has saved his own family, but also the impact Joseph had in a period of famine on on Egypt and the surrounding areas. Everyone would have starved if there wasn't this plan that God had revealed. Joseph's role is so crucial um, that he saves his family because his family suffered. That doesn't justify what they did to him. But look at the kindness of God, who preserved him. And though they didn't deserve it, he saved them. But these, the Egyptian nations that look to foreign gods, they worship the sun and the river uh, and, and idols made of hands. And yet God used his own servant who suffered in order to bring them salvation. And so you read the book of Genesis and in the first 11 chapters, uh, starting with chapter three, there's this increasing alienation that intensifies. It's an alienation from God that pours itself out to human alienation from one another. And it starts in a way that seems simple and symbolic, but it quickly gets to violence and to arrogance um, and to all sorts of troubles. And so in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. And his plan is, is one of Abraham's descendants through, through this family, uh, there would be a reconciliation, a restoration, not simply for the biological family, but they're called to be a light to nations. They're called to bring God's blessing to the whole world, that, that as world history continues, God's Plan is happening underneath it. And that picture of the nations one day recognizing the God that they had not known, showing them grace and favor and coming and bringing honor and glory. It's seen in this moment. And I'm going to read to you from chapter 50, verses 7 to 11. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. And skipping to nine. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. In verse 11, when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of, of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. There's an old joke about the Pope coming for a very important meeting in New York and his flight is delayed. And there's a limousine waiting to pick him up and he gets off the flight and he tells the limousine driver you need to to drive very fast if it's safe don't stop at lights we will pay your tickets we will cover you i just need to get to this meeting it's crucial and the driver says it's one thing to pay my bills it's another thing for me to lose my license and to get fired and not to be able to work so the pope says will you agree to this you sit in the back of the limo and i drive so as the joke goes the pope drives off at high speed gets pulled over by a cop Uh, who then gets his license and registration and with great trepidation gets to his police car and calls his sergeant and says, we have a a serious uh, situation and I don't know what to do. We have somebody exceedingly important who I just pulled over and I'm not sure what to do. So the sergeant says, well, who is it? He says, I don't know. Well, what do you mean you don't know? How do you know he's important? He says, well, the Pope is his chauffeur. (laughs) And so it's that that, that confusion of, if, if this is the guy in the front, who is it? that must be in the back. And as it turns out, nobody of importance. You know, here we are thousands of years later reading about Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, who by God's calling becomes this famous person and nation. But he's being buried in the, the people don't know him. He left that land years ago. And maybe somebody remembers, oh yeah, Isaac's son, Jacob. I remember him. He he had had some good herds uh, until the famine. But where did he go? We thought he died. If they remember Jacob, Jacob was not an important person. This is not a remarkable burial. Families family's coming to to put one more body, number six, in the cave. But this entourage, that not only Joseph, who now looks like an Egyptian, the, the second highest in Egypt, but now these elders and these officials, chariots, horses, this is not, it does not appear that an ordinary person is being deposited in this land. And so certainly for them, they look and they say, who is this that there's such mourning, this weeping, these, these days of honoring this individual? Who is this person? Uh, but there's something that, that they didn't know that we can see, is this is the grandson of Abraham, the rotten kid who needed to straighten his life out, but God still was faithful to bless him, and now he has a place, despite his failings, because of God's faithfulness to Abraham, to humanity. And the Egyptians... Uh, That's not the power, the honor and the glory. It's what's not seen in the invisible God who orchestrated this. But it is a sign that one day in this very land, there would be a place of worship established. And the invitation is that the nations should go out and say, there is a greater king, there is greater riches, there's greater wealth. Come and seek the Lord of these people. And this moment is significant because it's as it should be, as a contrast to the story as it plays out. And so in verse five, Joseph goes to Pharaoh and says, let me please go up and bury my father. And it's a story that repeats itself, but in the opposite direction. There's a a time of favor where God's, God's wisdom through his servant Joseph is recognized by the highest official in Egypt, and Egypt honors and blesses and causes prosperity for those people, the family of Jacob. Generations later, um, one of the descendants, a descendant of Levi, and Moses, will be called to go before, before Pharaoh and again, ask if his people can go. He will say, let me go up, let our people go so that we can have a festival. And that Pharaoh in that generation firmly says no. And so we see these two similar stories. One of my, Abraham's descendants saying, let my people go to bury our dead father. Versus Moses who says, let my people go so they could worship the living God. And as long as Pharaoh was in charge, you can go bury your father and come back. But when a living God is presented to Pharaoh, he says no, and that changes the story, a story where once again, God would need through the suffering of his people to bring salvation and to bring light. That's where this story goes. But it's a repeated story in the Bible that that there are times when the wisdom of God's working in the lives of those who trust him and, and walk according to his ways are rec- recognized and there's a season of blessing. And there are times where there's sufficient corruption that the more right you do, the more you're despised. And it is unfair and it's unjust. But part of the calling of the Christian is don't change the game plan. Keep your eyes on Christ and follow him, live according to his ways. As, the, as society readapts in ways that are corrupt and expedient, Don't do them. And you say, but it's not gonna work, we're gonna suffer. And God says, well, sometimes, through the suffering of my people, that is where my light will shine. That is what's gonna bring the turnaround. Okay, we're gonna have a miserable week. Most of us could do that. God's people have gone through long seasons, and we find sometimes God's working through hardship for our sakes, he's refining the church, he's purifying us, he's fixing us, he's doing something in our lives or us as individuals. Sometimes God is handing us over to suffer as Jesus suffered so that his blessing, his light will come. That doesn't make it easy, but it means that we, if we don't have the answers to the specific whys, can go on to know God's kind care is still with us. And I don't know what God is up to, um, but as Jesus prayed for his disciples before he was to suffer, and be glorified and leave. He says, Father, I pray not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. We're not superficial for not wanting to suffer. When we suffer, we say, Lord, bring us relief. I want success as the world defines it. But sometimes God is going to use us for success as the world doesn't recognize. And that's not easy for most of us. We have to learn. But what we've seen again and again is the world will eventually learn. They will see the wisdom and the goodness of God, and so we need to stay to it. God needs a faithful witness of people that will stay to his ways and his plan, who will hope in him. It's not easy, but during these periods that we don't understand, we have to recognize, God, what are you doing in my life? And if you can't answer it, wait. Keep praying, keep Keep acting faithful, keep learning, keep throwing yourself out there. But you may also say, you know, Lord, I can't imagine how you're doing this for any good in my life. But I'm going to keep doing, I'm going to keep going, I'm going to keep honoring, I'm going to keep praying, and I'm going to hope that maybe this is not in vain that you'll do something in somebody else's life. And how often are there stories of people who have been impacted um, by what God has done in the life of one of his people? And so God does things that are different sometimes. God does things that are different in your life or in the lives of his people for others. Here's the last thing that I wanna talk about, last thing that I'll highlight from this passage. God sometimes does things that are particular. Uh, And what I mean by that is there are details that are not forgotten, and that's one of the things that we see in this story, the big picture. Along the way, there are so many threads that don't tie up here, that tie up later in the Bible, but there's always some loose threads that you read and you don't know how it belongs, and maybe, you know, years of study, it all comes together perfectly. But the details matter, the details of our lives, and so pray. (laughs) if you're single for a spouse. Pray for your kids if you're a parent. Pray for a new job if you're struggling. Pray for financial resources if you're having difficulty. Pray for the particulars in your life, but know that sometimes God is doing something bigger. That doesn't mean that the particulars don't matter. And here as Jacob's life ends, his life that has been hard, um, the son whom he loved, he thought he lost forever. He thought Joseph was dead. And you know, God does something in the life of Leah Who maybe jacob was concerned about wasn't concerned about god does something in the life of jacob but but this ending reminds us that god was going to do something very different through this messy family but but he still recognized to a certain degree the father's love for the son the love of jacob for joseph and so in chapter verse chapter 49 verse 33 he breathes his last and was gathered to his people gathered to his people an interesting phrase because they don't say that when he's buried. It would be one thing, now we put your body with Abraham and Sarah and uh, the others. Now you're gathered to your people. It's, it's when he dies, he's described as being gathered to his people. A New Testament view of life, eternal life, resurrection is, is fully expanded made known. Uh, this early in the Bible, the way we think of, of life after death, very different. And yet there's something here, the idea that he didn't end his days. He didn't return to the dust, but he's gathered to his people. Uh, Profound enough, and we don't have enough time, I'm not going to say more on it, but I just wanted to leave you with that thought where Hebrews describes this great cloud of witnesses. There's a sense in which Jacob has now run the race, he's finished, and now he joins Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But there seems to be this, this people that God is constantly adding to, that Jacob joins, he's gathered to his people. That's what we're told Join the family of Christ through the church and, and beyond the grave, you will, will be gathered to a people that God is watching over and leading somewhere. So then um, in, in chapter 50 verse one, it says, Joseph fell on his father's face and wept. And that's important. You know, most of us, you know, the, the, a frequent thing that, that hospice people would say is you know, nobody wants to die alone. And it's not just that he's surrounded with his 11 sons but the one that he thought was lost is now the prominent one. Think of God's kindness to Jacob, that now he dies seeing his son. And, and it, you go back to when Jacob learns that not only is his son Joseph alive, but in a season of famine, food is only in Egypt and not here. Jacob, who is very old and does not think he will live longer, although he does wind up longer, but he doesn't have the strength for the journey, has to face, do I go to get food, And do I love Joseph so much and i so eager to go that I risk not coming back? Do I change the plan, or do I stay here as you promised this land for Abraham and Isaac? And it seems that his heart is inclined to go, that he might risk giving up the promise in order to see the son he loves. In chapter 46, we looked at this some months ago, God appears to Jacob and says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. As God announced in advance, and so he says to Jacob, I will bring you up again, and he does. Joseph closes his eyes, but of course, what Jacob did not realize when he says, I will make you into a great nation there, and I will bring you up again. It would be hundreds of years after Jacob's death that as, as the descendants grow into a nation, now once again they need to leave, and it's only God taking them out and going with them. And we see um, it's not just a, the symbol in Jacob's life of what God will do through the nation and the plan, but it is a kindness to Jacob. <laughs> Jacob, you had to take a risk, and you took it, but I will bring you back. Um, but now, not only do you get the fulfillment of the promise, but you get the restoration of your lost son. And it's this remarkable thing in these details. And then you find yourself saying, that's nice for Jacob, that's nice for Joseph, It's nice for Leah. What about poor Rachel? And she's not entirely forgotten either. Although you have to wait a while and you have to look deeply to recognize that Rachel in her suffering also plays an important role in the plan. And so Rachel was buried on the way to Bethlehem in a place called Ramah giving birth to J- Benjamin. And years later, in the days of the prophets, in the book of Jeremiah, you know, the, you know, the whole of the Bible is good, every verse. Um, all of it's important. But some verses just don't seem as central, and there are some chapters that really are profound. Jeremiah 31 is one of them. Jeremiah 31 talks about a new covenant that God promises. And in, in Jeremiah 31, he talks about Jeremiah's announcing judgment that's coming. So uh, if you were here last week, if you remember, there's after Solomon dies, there's a civil war, and the ten tribes break off in the north, and Solomon's son with Judah and the Levites and eventually Benjamin, because of their being local, become part of the south. But there's ten tribes that, that, are, that, that um, no longer worship at the temple. The Assyrians destroy them, and they're gone for good. Now, they always thought, but we have the temple God's presence. We will never be cast out. And God sends Jeremiah and others and says, but you will. The Babylonians are going to destroy you. They don't believe it. He says, you'll be carried off, but the different thing is you will be preserved for a period and brought back. And Jeremiah 31 talks about a new covenant. And in Jeremiah 40, as the Babylons are coming, Babylonians come and they take Jerusalem, they're taking them out. And not everybody comes, and it it comes in several stages, but they gather and they stop everyone in Ramah, almost like to to take count, to gather them up, and then they're gonna keep coming. Now, Ramah is where the grave of Rachel is. And so they stop there. And Jeremiah in chapter 31, talking about how Ephraim and Joseph will be joined again with Judah, and that there will be one Israel in the new covenant, bringing everything together, the kind of thing you have to wait until the coming of Jesus. He says there that, that Rachel is weeping for her lost children. And that's Rachel's story, the one who lost Joseph, the one who loses her own life giving birth to Benjamin. And now her descendants are the ones who are lost. And there she is in a separate burial ground that was still identifiable at that time period. And Jeremiah says Rachel is weeping for her lost children, the sign that, that these people who are now forgotten, God has not forgotten. So you come to the New Testament, and what is Matthew going to tell us about the coming of Jesus and his birth? Well, one of the things is, once again, it's a period where there's hostility. Herod, the local king, who should be acting favorably towards his own people, he's a, a bit mixed, but he should be advocating for the descendants of Abraham, although he seems to have loyalty to the emperor of Rome. He hears that the time has come for God's servant, God's promised savior, the descendant of Judah. Judah. And he's threatened because he knows if God's king has come, I'm no longer in power. So what do you do? (laughs) You try to kill the king. And so he asks the scholars, well, where would I find, if God was to send a Messiah, where would he be born? And they search the scriptures and they say Bethlehem in Judea. So in what's sometimes termed the slaughter of the innocents, clever Herod says, kill every child under the age of two. Uh, to make sure that this one they're claiming is the next king in the line of Judah does not grow up to threaten my rule. And so, so Joseph is warned to go to Egypt. So there's another story in the New Testament with echoes of, of God's own people coming against their brothers and Joseph needing to go to Egypt, that his life would be spared. And then coming out of Egypt would be this king who would come but in the atrocious thing that Herod did. Because God's plan was to send his son, but the world so opposed that they were willing to kill scores of children. Matthew quotes Jeremiah 31 and says again, Rachel is weeping for her lost children. Rachel and her weeping are not forgotten. God is waiting till the fullness of time until he could send his son in to this messy and crooked world and and turn people's mourning into laughter. But what's unexpected and what's surprising and what people didn't seem to want is God is going to do this through his own son that doesn't come with honor and power and glory, but comes as one who suffers. And so that's what makes Christianity interesting. There, there are many compelling things about Christianity. One of the reasons Christianity historically has been overwhelmingly attractive to the neglected and the suffering and those who are at their wits end is because there's an invitation to say, no matter how hopeless it looks, you can have a place among my my people because I see you differently, I will watch over you. Uh, Come, if you're weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And the surprising plan, the thing that, that people didn't desire is that the leader God would send would come with moral authority, but not external signs of power and prestige. He would come with wisdom and greatness, not having learned the ways of the institutions. Jesus would come according to the plan, and he would come to to have Mary, another weeping mother, watch her own son, rejected and suffering, hand over to death, in order that through his resurrection, God would show his purpose that one day he will wipe away every tear, as is promised that one day for those who hope in him and trust him, they will see the wisdom of God, that where we say, word, I don't know why you're doing this in my life, the Christian has to stop and say, but, but I don't know why Jesus, for all his glory and majesty and wisdom was hated and rejected. And God says, it was for you, it was for salvation. He went through that because I'm going to do something particular for the world, not for him, but for you. And he will receive glory because there's no one like him. But he will invite you to have a share in it. And that's what causes us to marvel at the wisdom of God, that we say, who is like God, who could could potentially bring salvation in any way we could imagine it? And God says, but you always don't understand. Things are more complicated. Here's how I'm bringing salvation. Through this long multi-thousand year story where Jesus comes as the fulfillment and it's the salvation of the world, and it's the light of the nation, but it also includes particular people. You who are gathered today, our neighbors, our friends. And so we are told in these periods of confusion and powerlessness and helplessness, remember the wisdom of God and and remain faithful. I, I read some emails this week, so I'm part of an email group of ministers in our denomination who get together once a year Usually it's about 30 or 40 who shows up because you have to travel for it, so it's not everybody in the email list. But during the year, people will ask questions or share stories or ask for prayer. So an email comes this week, and it says, does anybody remember that West African woman who we met 10 years ago in Arkansas? So there was some gathering. I was not there. Apparently they gathered in Arkansas. I probably still would not have been there. And so uh, he asks this question, and the amount of emails that come, you know, do you remember this woman? And clearly, lots of people remembered her. And so what happened is, she worked at the place they were staying, and, and, and somebody talking to her realized she was international, and said, you know, if you're going to move to the country, why did you move to Arkansas? You know, these are people from the region, so they weren't being rough on Arkansas. It just seems, of all the places to immigrate, why here? And as she told her story, it it was the story she told, the way she told it and and she was a Christian and and what she talked about that that stirred this very firm memory in all of these people. And and basically she said, things were getting harder in my country, Liberia. Things were were intensifying and there wasn't work and I just decided I'm going to take a risk and come to the United States. And, And I came and days after I left, war broke out. My father was killed in the war. It was a devastating time. And the way they over email recounted this is she would stop and say, isn't the Lord so good? You know, you're wondering, why did I wind up here in the middle of nowhere? I'm like, thank you, Lord, that I'm here alive and safe. Isn't the Lord good? And then she said, uh, and I met a man here and I married him and I was unable to have children. And so he divorced me. And then God sent this Christian man into my life and we were married and in my 40s, long after I thought I could have children, I started having children. Isn't God so good? And that's her story, isn't God so good? I think most of us would be stuck on why? Why not the first husband? <laughs> but her, her sense was, isn't God good? And this faithful Christian man was, was so committed to the church that he was gonna help build a new church. I don't mean that symbolically, uh, I mean very literally. He was gonna devote all his free time and energy in terms of doing construction carpentry work and he has a heart attack on the job and dies. And because this happened at the church, people came and paid for his funeral expenses, but this woman says, isn't the Lord good? The family provided for me. But to know that I married a man who gave his life, he died building the church. God has been good. And, and, and so that was her story. She kept talking about how, God good, how good God was to a group of guys who studied the Bible at a seminary level, and whose job it is is to remind people to see that God is good. And we know it up here. But here's this woman who lived it. And, and, and she said, God is good. I see it again and again. And, and one of them chimed in over the email. Do you remember she kept saying, look look at God? That was her phrase, look at God. And then one of them over the email said they remember they went out to dinner, and the waiter brought this amazing meal. and Somebody said, look at God. There was this sense in which she had impacted them immediately. Um, and I'm reading through this e- these emails. And it, it, when, the first email, does anybody remember that woman? The second email, somebody said, I was just talking about her this week. <laughs> you know, I, I, I wonder who this woman is. And if, as I was imagining this week, if you went to her and said, do you remember 10 years ago meeting a bunch of pastors, maybe she would say yes. I w- if she was me, I wouldn't be surprised if she said no. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. She may have no memory of them. They have clear memory of her, but it's not just a memory of an interaction, but, but something that the Lord did in her life, that she was a witness to God's goodness, didn't simply become an illustration for them, but impacted this group of people that years later, the leaders of the church were saying, do you remember that woman and what God showed us through her? And I find myself thinking, you know, now a couple of the guys had talked about how they shared her story in services, and here I am. I wasn't even there. I never met her. I'm talking about her. You know, it's possible she's part of one of our churches, and, but I doubt she's Googling us and, and listening to our sermon. So here's this woman who went through all these terrible things, and what does she see? She sees the goodness of God. But she has no idea, I'm assuming, no idea, that now at the least hundreds, if, if simply three pastors shared in their churches, uh, if not more, hundreds of people are finding themselves saying, uh, this woman who suffered greatly has Been a witness to the goodness of God. I found myself this week wondering how many people, whether it was in the past when she was shared about, or even this week, if only one person will find themselves at their wits' end, saying, "I can't go on. I don't want to live any longer." And the Lord is going to bring to mind, "Look at God." This woman's phrase, "Look at God," doesn't mean everything's going to be easy, but it means right now, based on all you know, you're about to make a bad choice look at God and wait because whenever people do that at some point they always wind up saying God is so good this woman is one in a line of people that that you'd expect to curse God and she says God has been good and so this week in this season when you're tempted yourself to turn away and say word you're not being kind to me wait because God is wise he knows what he's doing Be faithful, pray, trust them, make good choices, cry out, but know that our labor is not in vain, and take confidence in that. Let me pray for us. Our Father, you are so good. We're, We're here to declare it by faith. Some of us have to sing it with the commitment of our minds, because in our hearts we're troubled. Some of us are angry. Some of us are confused. Some of us have just spiritually withered out of neglect or out of Uh, being worn down But Lord you don't change your goodness does not change and the promises you make are always fulfilled And Lord we don't know how you will pull every detail into it, but you have promised that none who hope in Jesus will be disappointed Lord in the power of your spirit grant us that hope and that grace so not only will we have a future satisfaction and fulfillment but that we would have a present strength to help us in our confusion, in our discouragement, to help us so that we would still be faithful for our sakes, to experience the blessing of walking with you, but for the sake of this world, that you've still left us here, so that in serving you, um, you might use our lives to shine light wherever we go. Lord, like Jacob and like everyone else in the Bible except Jesus, we're failing at that, but use us and fix us and Work through our greatness and work despite our flaws, but encourage us. And we pray for those in our midst and those who are part of this gathering who are at the end of their rope. Uh, Lord, this week, keep uh, by the Spirit a voice in their ear. Look at God. Uh, Show them your glory uh, and provide for your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.